All right, everyone, welcome to the Above Average Football Fan Podcast for above average football fans and below average football fans who want to learn more about the game, or if you're a football junkie, this is the podcast for you. We're glad you're here, and we hope you enjoy it. Here we are for episode two of season two of the Slightly Above Average Football Fan Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Thomas Bowen. Thomas, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to another good one. All right, man. So for the folks who listened to us last week, we did a pretty much a Gamecock preview uh, because we were at the USC Alumni Center. So we're going to talk a little bit more about our rival, Clemson. We don't intend for this to be a solely a Gamecock podcast, so we want it to be kind of balanced, as much balanced as two guys who went to Carolina and are diehard Gamecock fans can be about Clemson. But we're going to give them some time today, talk a little bit about them and some other things as well around college football. So with that being said, here's how we are going to run it today. We're going to start off talking SEC realignment. So first of all, for anybody who doesn't know, um, believe it's, is it 2025? That's 20, correct. 2025, Oklahoma and Texas are slated to join the SEC from the Big 12. Um, so obviously this is going to have a big impact on SEC football when you consider just how d- tough that conference was or this conference is to start with. Thomas, let's just start with you. What are your thoughts about this? You know, and, and looking at this and, and you know, on paper, 2025, of course, and, and that is for, for deals and contractual agreements that are already in place. But I, I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't talk about the fact that it's going to happen sooner than that. You know, plenty of people are talking about this. This could be as early as 2022. I think that's very much a possibility. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure that that Texas and Oklahoma, from from their perspective, they're they're trying to keep all of their agreements in place, and and of course don't want to breach any contracts. So I certainly understand that, but let's not kid ourselves. That they're not going to wait until 2025, especially with the way the entire landscape is changing, um, and you've got this crazy uh, alliance that we'll talk about later. Um, I just think there there there's there's no way on earth that we're going to get to 2025 before this happens. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very good point to start off with. You're exactly right. I I think this will happen before then, and you're right. It could be as soon as next season. You know, considering how quiet they kept this initial move anyway, like I think it's pretty fair to say they're already probably talking about that. You know, we didn't even – I remember it started off as a uh, social media rumor. Oh, they're going to move Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC. And everybody's like, that's crazy. We would have heard about it by now. That's, that was not happening. And then all of a sudden, oh, wait, it is. And they've been talking about it for six to eight months, super quiet. So you're probably right. There's, there's quiet deals being made and, and, and uh, contracts being discussed and, and buyouts being discussed as we speak. So it could be well before 2025. So – you know, there's been a couple different theories about what this will look like whenever it does happen, what it's going to look like. So the initial thing I heard was that the SEC would just bump Alabama and Auburn from the West to the East. Please no. Yeah, definitely. Please don't do that. Please, please don't do that. I know SEC, you don't like us, but just please don't do that. Um, and then Texas and Oklahoma would join the West. Um, like you just said, please don't do that. We already play uh, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, you know, of course, just all the teams. And then, you know, you pick up the regular, are doing that and bringing in Alabama and Auburn over to the east is just going to be really hard for South Carolina. The other thing we've heard is this four-pod system. 
and everybody would be broken into a pod. You would play the other three teams in your pod and then rotate playing different teams from the other pods. It's kind of referred to as the World Cup model because it's very similar to the opening rounds of the World Cup when you're a different pool and you play your own pool and this, that, and the other. So, you know, that could be possible as well. So, Thomas, what are you thinking there? Like, what do you think this thing's going to look like? How's it going to impact us? I mean, it sounds very difficult. What are your thoughts? Yeah, and I, I think ultimately we, we are going to land in some sort of, some sort of pod format um, because I also think that this is this is just the beginning of the dominoes. Uh, with everything else that's happening, we're going to end up uh, essentially with some super conferences here. So certainly Texas and Oklahoma are, are, are not the last ones here. Um, and of course, I mean, let's be honest, the SEC is the SEC. Everybody right. wants to play in the SEC, mm-hmm. the, the, the greatest conference in college football. Mm-hmm. Um, so those definitely will not be the last ones. And that's why I think, uh, yeah, if it was just Texas and Oklahoma, I could foresee something as simple as, as moving a couple West teams to the East and then dropping them in in the West. But with all of these dominoes that are con- going to continue to fall, I don't think there's any way that a pod format can be avoided in this scenario. Yeah, I think that's the most likely option because you're right. It could be more. We could be looking at the end of college football conferences as we know it before long. And you could see this three super regional conferences that have this pod system. And you have this pool that you play in and all that very World Cup-esque. And you have to make it out of that to go to the next round, so to speak. And, of course, we know the playoff system is looking to expand to 12 teams. So that's going to change everything too. So it's going to be interesting, um, you know, it's going to be a wait-and-see type thing. So you mentioned other dominoes to fall. We've had – has a domino fallen here? Like, is that what you call that? I don't know what you call this. I, I don't even know if they know what they would That's call it. And absolutely. The, the way that I look at this 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 alliance here with uh, with the Big Ten, Pac-12, and ACC is and, – and they had their, their, their press conference, air quotes, mm-hmm. um, yesterday, which was a, a big nothing burger – but this is what I don't understand about this is there's there's no contract in place, there's no formal agreement. To my knowledge, there's no revenue sharing plans. They're they're not saying what they're going to do. This is essentially these three conferences said, yeah, we hate the SEC too. Let's start a club together, right? With no dues or anything yeah. else. Right. Um, and of course, we we know, at least I think we know ultimately what what they're trying to do here. And, um, you know, they, they want to have more of a voice in how this how a possible 12-team playoff is built, right. and they want to be able to have more voting power, so to speak, against conferences like the SEC. But I just think this is just crazy, and I just don't understand what they're doing. I think it is, it is, is silly, honestly, mm-hmm. if you ask me. It feels to me like a desperation move, like a grasp of, okay, wait a minute, the SEC just got even more powerful. Like you just said, they want to have a say-so in what they're going to do with the 12-team playoff. So they jumped into this alliance, which all I can think of is the original, well, not the original, the prequel, Star Wars with the Trade Alliance. And it just, like, as stupid as that was, this is equally as unimportant. Like, I don't get it. It just seems desperate and doesn't really do anything. And so I guess, I mean, (laughs) I have in our show rundown notes, does it matter? And I don't, I don't know if it does. No, I think it'll be interesting to see kind of how this works, and and if they if they do want to start, you know, tweaking some scheduling and some things like that. Um, but because I think scheduling, which which I would like to talk about that for a minute with this alliance, sure. 
Um, it's definitely going to be the, the most complicated because if you look at this, the way that these conferences are currently set up, at least for the Big Ten and the Pac-12, they both require their members to play nine conference games. So <clears throat> there's a couple different options they could come into there. One option would be the Big Ten drops to eight conference games and each school plays one game with each of the Pac-12 and ACC annually. Example, you could have, I don't know, Wisconsin would play Virginia and Oregon one year and Florida State and UCLA the next. Now, of course, we know that a lot of these ACC teams have SEC crossover rivals. We're in one with Clemson as it is. And, of course, you know, the Clemsons are going to be fine. But what about the Georgia Techs and the Louisville, and they're going to be adding two more Power 5 teams to their schedule? That is going to be murderous for those schools. So I don't understand how – I don't see how they're going to manage that piece either. Yeah, I agree. I I feel like – the ACC called these other conferences out of desperation as their neighbors of the South kind of started getting more powerful and said, hey, they could do this to you too. You should team up with me and we can all be together. And I think, you know, the Pac-10 gets left out, Pac-12, I guess, gets left out sometimes in the playoffs. So they're thinking, oh, okay, we can we can get a little bit of more strength there. But I just, I hear you. Like the the conference scheduling or out-of-conference alliance scheduling, whatever world you want to call it, it does benefit, you know, some of these other teams, the Virginias of the world. But that doesn't really help Wisconsin or, or, you know, Michigan, Michigan State. You know, they are now making themselves even harder. So, like, does this alliance mean you're going to play your Big Ten conference schedule, for example, and then your out-of-conference games are now ACC and Pac-12? That's pretty hard. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how they set it up. And and from particularly for the Pac-12, um, I can see from, from their perspective here, um, of course, they probably see a lot of advantages to this. One, one advantage I do see particularly for Pac-12 is, you know, that would give them – most likely more central and eastern time zone games. Yep. That's going to expose them to more of a marketing and recruiting territory. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, it's beneficial for them, whereas they're kind of landlocked on that, are, are locked into those those West Coast time zones and, and all of those games. So it'll be interesting. Absolutely. You know, it could end up that they get to play a night game beyond the road, but it'd be actually 7 o'clock at – on the East Coast, where you have so many voters and people watching. And we've heard for years about the East Coast bias when it comes to college football. And, I mean, I think there's some reality to that. Certainly. Um, but, you know, that's that's a good thing for them. But I just, again, like you said, Clemson will be fine. I don't see the benefit for Ohio State. I don't see the benefit for Michigan. I don't see the benefit for Penn State. I don't see the benefit for Southern Cal. You know, like it, it's the other programs. And so it's, again, to me, a knee-jerk reaction. And, hey, they did something. We got to do something so we don't look like we're just sitting here and they're beating us and they're getting better than us. Yeah, it's, re- it's really the, 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 the current top-tier teams of those conferences or the blue bloods, if you will, that are going to benefit. You know, the other, the, the other doormats of those conferences, are they're going to be left out in the cold. But, of, of course, I'm sure this is sold to them as, hey, we, you know, we're not going to leave you out. We're, we're, we're going we're gonna to take you all along on this ride, and we're going to help you all out in any way we can. But, of course, we know that's not the case in the end. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, Clemson wants to help UNC and the other pow- powers of the ACC 
until it comes time to play each other or get into the ACC championship or get into the playoffs. Like that alliance is going to fall apart. I mean, it's just like this is super old school and nerdy, but like think about Survivor, the TV show. You'd have groups get into these alliances and then they would fall apart when it came time to for being voted off the island. So when it comes to being voted off the college playoff island, they're going to turn on each other. And it's just silly. I, I don't understand it. But maybe maybe we just don't know about it enough yet, and it could be you know, more powerful than we think. Speaking of something that we're still learning about, and it's developing as we go, is the NIL agreement and rules now in the NCAA. Name, image, likeness. This is an opportunity for current college football players and college athletes across all sports to be able to make money off their name, off their likeness, off their image, which previously they could not do. You had players who got in trouble for making money off of autographed pictures or autographed jerseys or footballs or basketballs, whatever you have. So now they can do that. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of things here. I think, Thomas, you and I both agree college athletes have deserved to be paid for a long time. Absolutely. Uh, I, I definitely think so. And, and the, the opponents of this like to champion the whole, um, you know, free education and, sure. and cost of living and all that. But, but let's be honest, that, that doesn't matter mm-hmm. in the vast majority of these situations. And schools are making millions and millions of right. dollars off of these kids. So absolutely they deserve to be paid. Um, and I think, you know, you and I, yeah, we do agree on that. I would probably take it a little bit farther than you mm-hmm. um, and be a little bit more liberal with it, which we'll get into that. But uh, it's a long time coming, and I'm glad that it's finally here. And I think there's going to be a lot of big, big changes with it over the years. Absolutely. And I, I agree. You know, listen, for the folks who say that, you know, getting an education is very important. Education is my real job. But I value that. I think it's very important. But you said something that's key. Schools, conferences, the NCAA, they have been making millions, billions of dollars off of these guys. And I just can't sit and say getting a free education, which is important, getting free room and board, which is great, getting meals paid for on campus and, you know, sweats and books paid for and all those great stuff. That's all well and good. And, you know, there were expenses that people have to pay and people take student loans for. And so these players don't have to do that. But on top of that, if that was where it stopped, okay, fine. You know, if high school, excuse me, college football coaches were making what high school football coaches were making. Okay, fine. You know, hey, you get a free degree, you know, that's can make you make a lot of money down the road. Perfect. Great. But that's not the case. We're making millions of dollars, you know, for these coaches and these universities and the NCAA. You know, I always have, you know, that Michigan Fab Five mentality of they were talking about seeing when they were on campus their jerseys being sold with their numbers on it and their and the, all of that and just hand over fist and they didn't have enough money to buy dinner that night. Like they're going to Wendy's to get the, the, the dollar menu. And so I understand that. Mine, I think this is where you and I differ, is I just feel like we jumped the shark here. We went so far. I do think if a college athlete can find somebody who will say, hey, if you come to my business or if you come to my sporting goods store and you put a table out and you want to sign autographs and charge people, go for it. That's good. 
I do think if a university sells a jersey with, you know, for a great example, Marcus Lattimore, if, if when they were selling, what, hundreds of thousands of Carolina 21 jerseys, he should have gotten some money of that. Like, you can't tell me you were just randomly selling the 21 jersey when Marcus Lattimore was playing. Same with Jadavion Clowney in number seven. Same with a more modern example, Kevin Harris. If they're selling to number 20 jerseys with Harris on the back, or might as well have Harris on the back, he needs to be getting paid for that. So I 100% agree with that. If a company wants to pay you to come in, you know, I guess, you know, car dealership, hey, come hang out sign autographs, we'll pay you to do that. That's how we'll get people on our lot, and then hopefully they'll buy cars. I'm good with all of that. Where it starts getting murky for me is some of these players that are getting 500000 or more dollars, essentially sponsorships, with major companies. And, and to me, I'm just like, wow, that gets so murky. And, and I just struggle there. And, and I think I think the issue there is right or wrong. This is this is squarely on the NCAA. This is their fault. We all saw this coming. The NCAA is filled with people a lot smarter than us. Mm-hmm. We saw this coming for years now. They didn't get out ahead of it. The lawsuit dropped and everything changed. And then they're left holding the bag at right. that point. Right. Um, so I think the, the NCAA should have done something a lot sooner on this. Uh, now, obviously, you've got, I don't know what the number is now, but a handful of states that have, that have instituted their own NIL laws within the state. And those the states that do not have those, the NCAA has basically said, all right, well, y'all got to figure it out. They don't have a framework in place for this. So I think that's why things are are running a little rampant now. I mean, you've got the quarterback from from Alabama, Bryce Young, is allegedly he's nearing a million dollars in sponsorships. Mm-hmm. Now we don't know a lot of the details of some of these deals, but there's a lot of money out there. Yeah. And and quite frankly, it is uh, I'm kind of I'm kind of of the mindset. Hey, if you can make it, make it. You sure. never know when it's going to end. You never know when you're going to have a Marcus Lattimore mm-hmm. career-ending injury. Um, they can have all of the insurance policies in place, but Let's be honest, with some of the talent these people have and, and the marketability and the money that they are forecasted to make, that insurance policy is not going to make up for that. Absolutely not. I mean, Marcus had one of those insurance policies, and, and I believe, obviously, he got the, the payout on that for never playing in the NFL. You know, the way it was told to me was that was the reason he never played a down in the NFL. Like, he could have given a run, but it was one of those things where, like, the second you take a snap, all that money goes away. And so, and I could be wrong about that. That was just what I heard. So you're right. The money he made there, whatever it was, is not equivalent to what he would have made over a 10-year career in the NFL. And so I agree with you to an extent. It's, maybe it's just ruffles me. It makes me feel weird, you know, thinking about, you know, I, I saw a story where people are saying Arch Manning, the nephew of Peyton and Eli, Cooper's son, He'll be a top pick or top draft, sorry, could be a top draft pick, top recruit next year that by his freshman year, he could be making $5 million as a college player. And I guess that is great in a way. It's just strange. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of it also for, for somebody like you who is arguably a traditionalist when it comes to things like this, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I think it's, it's just it's, it's very new. It's there's still we got to give it some time to, to, to shake out a little bit. Um, and like I said, I think things are going to change a lot. But I also look at it from 
a lot of these athletes, arguably the overwhelming majority of them, come from poverty. Mm-hmm. And their families back home don't have a lot of money. And they right. could use this money to support their families back home. A lot of them, you know, it is, is uh, I go back to one of the greatest football movies of all time, the program, oh, Alvin absolutely. Mack. Alvin Mack wanted to get that house for his mom, right. and then he blew out his knee, didn't make it. You think he could have used an NIL deal? Absolutely he could have. He could have given her that house before he even got to the league. That's right. So I think there's a lot of benefits here behind the scene that people aren't thinking about. And, again, things are going to change a lot. This could look wildly different two, three, mm-hmm. ten years from now. So just got to kind of see that things shake out. Honestly, sometimes I kind of like watching chaos, so I'm kind of enjoying the ride. Yeah, I mean – like you said, I, I can be a little more traditionalist when it comes to this sort of thing. So I, I do kind of go, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> but, you know, it could play out well. And you're right. I think we're going to see it change multiple times. By the way, just talking about the program for a second, the scene when they're in the film room and he's talking about his responsibilities. He's like, what do you do on this? What do you do on this? And he ends with kill everybody. <laughs> that is just amazing. We're going to have to do a pod just about the program, maybe a rewatch or something. I like it. Um, so yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, I do think I want to go on record that I think kids that are playing college sports should have been being paid for a long time. And, you know, I do like to see that they are doing this for everybody because, you know, you're right. Let's be honest. A player in a non-revenue sport is not going to get the opportunities that a division one college football player, college basketball, maybe even college baseball is going to get. If you're on the swim team, no disrespect to the swim team, you're not going to get as many opportunities. I will say I've been very happy to see, you know, obviously in South Carolina, we've got one of the best women's basketball programs in the country, if not the best at this point in time. And I've seen a lot of our players getting deals, and I think that's great. And the other thing that has been brought up to me by other friends, you have that weird locker room feel. So I'm a true freshman quarterback. I'm making $2 million. I'm a senior offensive lineman who's blocking my tail off for you I'm a fifth year senior I'm an offensive lineman I don't usually get a whole lot of deals how is that going to work in the locker room that dynamic of that's got to sting a little bit you know or are you being a good quarterback for years quarterbacks in the NFL have taken their offensive line and hey if I win if I win the MVP or rookie of the year offensive player of the year I'm gonna take you guys out or they just take them out every week anyway so if you're in that position then that's what you should do I think there was a a player at Minnesota a really good wide receiver that said whatever money he makes he's spreading it around on the team like he's going to share it with his teammates and I think that's what you got to do um so it's just gonna be interesting to see uh, how it plays out. All right, so we're going to switch gears to Clemson, uh, just like we usually do. I'm going to talk mostly offense. Thomas is going to talk mostly defense. Um, so here we go. We're going to jump into the quarterback position. Thomas, we both know, and anyone who has ever listened to this show knows, there is not a chance I'm going to say DJ's name right. So can you just help us out there? Yeah, and we're going to get there eventually. Okay. Ui Ungalele. Ui Ungalele. There you go. That's, you got okay. it. All right, I'm gonna stick to DJ for now. Perfect. But he that's probably Uwe Ungalele. DJ Uwe Ungalele is primed and barring injury will be the starting quarterback for Clemson this coming season. We've seen him play against Notre Dame. I believe he saw some time against Boston College as well mm-hmm. last year. Um, another one of Clemson's five star nationally ranked quarterbacks. You know, you have 
I mean, really, you could go back to Taj Boyd. I think he was a, possibly a four or five star. Then you have, obviously, Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence. And now you've got DJ. So, And, and honestly, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, Clemson has had a, a wealth of riches at quarterback. And I don't know how they do it, but everyone yeah. seems to be better than the last it's, one. It's amazing. And yeah. with, with Trevor Lawrence, I was like, okay, th- this is the best one they've had. He's unbelievable. Right. Uyunglele will likely be better than Trevor Lawrence. <laughs> and he's bigger, and he brings – like, Trevor Lawrence is a better athlete than he gets credit for. Sure. I mean, we, we've seen that multiple times. But he's bigger. He's a better runner. He's kind of got a Cam Newton-esque body type that he looks like he can take a hit. Mm-hmm. You know, Deshaun Watson was very fast and still is a very fast guy, uses his legs to scramble and whatnot. But, and they used him on design runs when he was at Clemson. But – Ooh, a lot. See, I tried. Stick I just, to DJ I for now. For it. Yeah. <laughs> DJ, we're going to stick to DJ. DJ, I feel like they can run a little quarterback power in the middle, in between the tackles, and he can take that hit. And, and that brings a whole other level of problems for defenses facing Clemson. I think it's, it's going to be, you know, you saw a lot of that in the Taj Boyd days. Yeah. He, he was essentially like another running back in the mm-hmm. backfield. And let's be honest, Taj Boyd is not half the passer that DJ mm-hmm. or Trevor or Deshaun was. So, so they kind of had to use that skill set with Taj Boyd. Now that they're not forced to use this, but it's just another tool right. in the chest, it's, it's very dangerous. Very dangerous. And it's just – so, you know, when you look at Clemson's offense, it's, it's sort of evolved. You know, you had Chad Morris who was originally there and brought this spread offense. It's more of a spread power in the same vein of Gus Malzahn. And they were high school coaches around the same time, learned together this offense, built together this offense. So there's some similar, there was some similarities between what Auburn was doing with Gus Malzahn and what Chad Morris was doing. Of course, you've had Jeff Scott. He moves on now. And they have their um, former running back coach, Tony Elliott, who's now and was co-OC, uh, is now the OC call in place. So the offense has evolved, but I also think that Coach Elliott's a very good coach, and he's going to play to his strengths when it comes to his players. So whereas they may not have used Trevor Lawrence in those between-the-tackles, you know, in the A-gap, B-gap type runs, I think you can see that more with DJ. And so, that, like you said, that just makes them even more dangerous. So along those same vines or lines that he's a very good runner, at running back – Clemson does not have the veteran running back waiting in the wings that they've had the past couple of years. Trevor Etienne has moved on to the NFL, playing with Trevor Lawrence in, in Jacksonville, although he just recently got hurt. I hope he's okay. Um, so just for the record, fans, and I can't uh, speak to Thomas, but once they stop wearing orange and purple, I can pull for him in the NFL. It's just 100%. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think I, – no disrespect to probably some of my friends here, right. but – uh, people that hold on to that hatred yeah. after they leave, that's just ridiculous. Well, and I'll be honest with you. I'm an Eagles fan, and one of my favorite Eagles of all time is Brian Dawkins, yeah. who went to Clemson. Like, Wolverine, Weapon X, number 20 for the Philadelphia Eagles is one of my best favorite players. One of the reasons I'm an Eagles fan, I mean, he was a Clemson Tiger. So I don't that doesn't matter to me anymore. Absolutely. And so point being, you know, they don't have that guy necessarily. Lynn J. Dixon – is a senior, I believe, who's been waiting in the wings. He was a backup last year and got some times, did some good things. Uh, dogs are helping us out here. Um, did some good things, and they, you know, can count on him to be solid 
They can count on him to be solid. I think he's going to be a good back. But they don't have that veteran waiting. And now what they do have is a five-star recruit. Stop me if you heard me before say that about Clemson. And Will Shipley (laughs) out of North Carolina, highly recruited, highly ranked, and apparently has done very well in fall camp and preseason and really hasn't disappointed. Um, You know, you talked about – their quarterback spot, and it just seems they keep getting better, keep getting better, keep getting better. It's kind of like that at running back. And when you look at ETN and what he did, you know, Will Shipley, he seems ready to play as a freshman, and he's a guy who can do a little bit of everything. Now, at the high school level, we hadn't seen him in college, but from all the reports I've read, which I'll be honest, I obviously don't read as much about Clemson as I do Carolina, but – He's done well in fall practice, and he looks like he can compete this fall. Yeah, and, and you know, notwithstanding the fact that Clemson is opening up with Georgia this year, right. if, if you take that out of the equation, I think one of the benefits that Clemson has, particularly for, for these young guys and the freshmen, is because they play in the ACC, they're able to kind of ease those guys sure. along and get them a lot of touches against the, the Boston colleges and those mm-hmm. type schools. Um, it's – Again, they're opening up with Georgia, which is which is wildly different from that. But as a whole, it gives them a chance to ease those guys in, give them reps. And when they go down the stretch, when it matters and they go into playoff time, those guys have got plenty of touches, experience, big game experience, and they're ready to go for the long haul. Absolutely. And I think you're exactly right with that. All right, at wide receiver, they have a lot to replace here. Uh, you know, you have Amari Rogers, who's moved on to the NFL, Cornell Parnell. I think I said that correct. Mm-hmm. He has also moved on. So, but they also have somebody that come coming back that they lost unexpectedly last year, who was unbelievable the year before in Justin Ross. And you know, I believe it was a neck issue. Yep. And so it looked like he may never play football again. But after a year off of rehab and and doing whatever he needed to do, he's been cleared to play again. And he is a stud. And he's not. You know, he's game tested. He's done a lot of things. So, you know, as much as they are replacing some um, production there at the wide receiver position, they've got somebody back who's a veteran who they may not even expected. You know, that was iffy. There was a time last season where it was talked about he was not going to play football again because of this neck issue. So he is back. They also have a great tight end. Brendan Galloway was a stud last year. He's actually their leading returning receiver on the team at this time. Bo Collins, true freshman, another stud. I think he comes in at 6'3". You know, looks like a guy who can really contribute. As you mentioned just a second ago, due to their schedule, they can kind of ease him in at times and maybe have him more prepared to compete on a regular basis at the end of the season. So they're not bad at the wide receiver spot. Yeah, and, and you know, that's, that's always been a, a strength of Clemson's offense, and this year is no different with Justin Ross alone. If he can stay healthy, I mean, he will be one of the best wide receivers in the country. And particularly when you have a guy like Justin Ross on the field who's going to draw a lot of double teams, it's going to open up things for the other guys too. So having him out there, even if he's not getting a lot of touches, it's just going to open up the rest of your passing game. Absolutely. All right, at offensive line, they've got – a lot of returners, particularly at the guard position, their left and right guard are really highly thought of. Matt, I think it's Brockle, and then Will Putnam 
are both highly thought of as guards, potentially all as, all ACC guards, and they have good good players at tackle and center. All right, so this was a group that wasn't always highly thought of at times last season. They were thought of more highly in pass protection than the run game, but overall, you know, still solid, and I think they're expecting them to be even better now that they have more experience. And, and the thing also with, with Clemson's offense and the way that it is run, it's a lot of uh, the quarterback is not holding on to the ball for a long time. It, they're going to take snap, get it out quickly. So you don't have to have a very prolonged pass protection, especially, again, with people like Justin Ross at wide receiver. There's not going to be a lot of coverage sacks against that offense. There's going to be – uh, it's just it's just a lot quicker, so you can you can mask a lot of deficiencies on the offensive line with a quick hitter offense like that. Now, granted, they've got to have the horses to make that run game go. It is a power spread, and it is still it's Tony Elliott's offense, but it is still firmly rooted in a power run game. So you've got to be able to run block and open up those holes. But I think you know you're going to see a lot of those linemen out in space pulling guards, trapping people. Um, that's just kind of how their mo, mo is. Yeah, and for anybody listening who may not know what we're saying when we're talking about power running. So when you think about zone running and power running, think of it as man-to-man defense in basketball versus zone defense, okay? So when you're playing zone defense on basketball or really in football, you have an area. You go to your an area that you're responsible for. When you're playing man-to-man, you have a man, and you might double-team a man. And there's a certain thing you're trying to accomplish there. So in the power run game, it's man-to-man blocking. You've got man-on-man, maybe a double team, a pulling player, but there's a set area the ball's trying to be run, which is one of the negatives of the power running game. You're going to a hole. You're going to one particular spot. Maybe there's a cutback area, but not necessarily. It's not necessarily designed that way. Whereas in the zone, you are – the way it's taught, the way I taught it, the way I was taught is you're on a track and you take your track and whoever comes across your face, you block them. And if your partner on your back hip, if that person crosses to that person, they take them. And it takes a lot of timing and it takes a lot of practice to get that right. Now, if you can get that communication down and you can do it well, it has its advantages. So I think having a zone and a power scheme in your offense is big, but That's kind of what we're talking about there when we talk about power blocking versus zone blocking if we've brought up the zone running game. is And the other advantage of the zone is it is not a designed hole. You're you're looking for a crease. You're looking for a hole. And you got to cut back. The best example of this ever, go watch the 90s Broncos with Terrell Davis. Just watch him run. He's looking to cut back every time. And, And it's just really good stuff. So anyway, just to fill in, if you hear power versus zone scheme, that's what we're talking about. All right, let's take a look at Clemson's defense. We've clearly defined their offense as the 99 Rams. So what's their defense looking like? Yeah, so Clemson's defense... You know that they're always good. They're they're phenomenal defenses. Um, they're always extremely deep. They're usually highlighted by a ridiculous front four. Uh, their defensive line is is has always is one of the top defensive lines in the country. And and if you remember, I believe from episode one where I said you know a lot of people say defenses win championships, but I think defensive lines win championships. Yep. Um, and so on their de- on defense, they've got nine starters are expected to return mm-hmm. from a pretty dang good defense from yep. last year. 
Um, but what really stands out to me is is this defensive line, and they've had some good ones. Arguably, coming into this year, their best defensive line was probably that 2018 team, right. the Power Rangers, as they call yeah, themselves, yeah, yeah. that was anchored by uh, Wilkins and Farrell and those yeah, guys. Yeah. This defensive line arguably could be better than that defensive line, That's which is scary. which is crazy to think mm-hmm. about. Um, but it's when you look at the strength that is returning there, and when you look at the fact that one of their starting defensive tackles, Brian Breesey, I believe his name mm-hmm. is, this kid is a true sophomore. He was a true freshman, All-American last year, ACC Defensive Rookie of the Year. When you've got people like him stacked up with Miles Murphy, Xavier Thomas, who some Gamecock fans may remember that name, was a yep. big recruit for us, K.J. Henry, Justin Foster, and it's just – layers and layers and layers behind them. Mm-hmm. Um, so their defensive line is going to disrupt a lot of offenses. Mm-hmm. Um, on the back end there, you, you've got um, – I don't, I don't want to completely skip over the linebackers because they've got the uh, – 10th year goon back there, Skalski. <laughs> yeah, he's um, played forever. And it's, it's just funny because, you know, Clemson always has this right. this this one linebacker who is, uh, um, you know, he's a great college player. Um, I, I call them goons because they're like the guys in hockey that just go out there and <laughs> just right. destroy people and just check people. Uh, and that's kind of how those guys are, and that's how Skalski is. Uh, now, I don't want to discount the fact that he, like a lot before him, are probably – real heady players and they're smart guys and I think Venables will rely on somebody like him a lot to get into a lot of checks on the field if you look back to uh, last year one of Brent Venables the DC for Clemson one of his biggest downfalls is he likes to see the offense come out and get set and he makes checks on the fly well Ohio State ate them alive with that they put out the blueprint to beat that, and that is you huddle and you get to the line and you snap it. You know who else was good at that is Steve Spurrier. That's right. Spurrier picked up on that really quickly, and if you go fast and you don't give Venables time to adjust, if you go back and look at that Ohio State game from last year, there were so many times where Ohio State's snapping the ball, Clemson's out of position, mm-hmm. they're still looking to the sideline mm-hmm. for checks, mm-hmm. and it was just all over the place. So that's, that's going to be one of the keys to Clemson's defense this year after that blueprint has come out. I agree with that, and you're exactly right. They gave the blueprint, and they used what's called the sugar huddle. And the sugar huddle is right behind the line of scrimmage. You get super close to the line. used to be with the traditional huddle, you're five to seven yards off the ball, and you got to run up. Sugar huddle is like literally you're standing by the ball, quarterback calls a quick play, wide receivers aren't usually even in the huddle, and the line, the quarterback, and the backs are all going to go to the ball and go. And you're exactly right. It caught Clemson a couple times because they were looking for venerables to go ahead and make calls and checks. And, you know, there were some people trying to say, well, they were stealing signals. Ohio State even tried to sort of imply that. And that they saying that's why they did it the way they did it. Justin Fields even sort of alluded to that. Let me just put this out there. Every defensive coordinator is trying to steal the offense's signals, and every offensive coordinator is trying to steal the other team's defensive signals. That's why signals exist. That's why you have sometimes you have a guy behind the DC or whoever's calling plays with a towel trying to block it, or you've got four guys signing when only one's active. That's been going on for as long as football's existed. So, like, easy Gamecock fans, like, yeah, maybe that was going on a little bit, but we weren't the, the Clemson wasn't the first, and they won't be the last to do that. It was more about the fact their preparation was okay, they're going to get set. 
They're going to see what we're doing, adjust to us, and then we're going to adjust at the last second so they can't, you know, they can't, what they adjusted to no, no longer matters because now we're shifting. And by just getting up and going, and they, they kind of, Ohio State kind of, you know, caught them on their heels and obviously had a heck of, heck of a game against them. And, w- and one of the ways, you know, that, um, that, that Spurrier did it against Venables when we had all that success back, feels like, decades ago, <laughs> one of the ways he did it was Spurrier would come out and get his offense set. Venables would make a check based on that. Spurrier would check out of that immediately right. and snap the ball. That's so right. it's essentially the same concept. We're just not huddling. We're not That's doing right. that sugar That's huddle. Right. That's right. Um, but when, when you get back on the back end there, this could really be um, one of their better secondaries mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, they lost a, a really good cornerback in Darion Kendrick. He's a transfer to Georgia. Mm-hmm. That'll be an interesting matchup to watch yep. Yep. Uh, in that opening game. But at the same time, when you've got a front four like they have, you don't have to have a great secondary no. back there because they're going to disrupt so much up front. Right. Last year, one of the one of the biggest issues they had was they they Clemson the the, the front struggled with the pass rush a little bit last year. And they ran a lot of three-man fronts last year with a blitzer coming, but he was just short. It was a fraction of a second too short. This year, they will have the luxury of sending four, and they won't even have to blitz anybody. Now, we know they will because Venables blitzes like he's calling plays on PlayStation. That's right. He does like to bring the heat. He does like to bring the heat. And if you can pick it up, you can can expose him for that. And that's – honestly, if you look at – what was it? Bentley's freshman year Mm -hmm. where we – you know, the end of the game wasn't close at the end, but I think Jake Bentley threw for 500 yards. Yeah, it was ridiculous. It was, it was just a lot. And so their secondary wasn't that great that year, but that's what was happening. We were able to pick up and we could make plays. And so, anyway, um, you're exactly right. So their defense ain't going to be bad either. Definitely not. And I think this could be, uh, again, this their, their offense, of course, is going to be great. We just talked about that. But – uh, they could absolutely lean on their defense. You know, if, if worst-case scenario, if, if DJ Uyunglele goes down and they've got to put in a very shaky backup, mm-hmm. they can just run the ball and just rely on their right. defense. Like, honestly, there's not a lot of people that can score a lot of points on them. I agree with you. And I just want you to know I know you were showing off by saying his last name there because you know I can't. <laughs> that, was, that was just mean. Um, so, anyway, you know, again, that's our Clemson preview. Listen. Let's just be honest. There's no point uh, in trying to lie about it as Gamecock fans. They're going to be good. They're going to be good. They're going to be very good. They're going to be in the um, hunt for the playoffs. You know, when we play them in November, it's going to have to be a perfect game by the Gamecocks with some big mistakes by the Tigers for that to be a game that we can compete in. You know, Coach Beamer, our team, they're going to do everything they can. They're going to come out ready to play. They're going to come out with a good attitude. I love that about what I see happening and being born in our culture in South Carolina. But sometimes it's the Jimmys and the Joes, and we'll see what happens. Um, Maybe we've pulled together and we can make some great things happen in Columbia. But Clemson, not to take away from Carolina at all, Clemson's very talented. They've, They've really got a system going well there. Their program's going well. Coach Sweeney's got it going on up there. I, I hate saying it, but it's the truth. Um, so we're going to switch gears again here. We're going to talk a little bit of scheme. One of the things we love here at Slightly Above Average Football Fan is we are football nerds. We love scheme. We talk about scheme. We look at scheme. We research scheme. I send Thomas emails with links to, like, coaches' videos. He does the same with me. So it's just we're nerdy about it. So we're going to talk favorite scheme. Thomas, you want to lead us off there? Yeah, um, 
Can I go defense here? Yeah, sure, absolutely. You know, uh, last week in episode one, I, I talked about how much I love the four-two-five scheme on yep. defense, yep. and which is you know mostly what we what South Carolina will be running this year. Um, and so when when you look at four-two-five defenses, you got to look at Gary Patterson, yes, and what he did it and what he's doing at TCU. Um, Gary Patterson ha- has run this four-two-five for a long time, uh, and he does things even though the yeah the the four-two-five in and of itself is a little breaks from tradition a little bit um but but he does things even a little bit less traditional as far as 425 goes so so the way that Patterson runs his 425s is like a like everybody else's 425 is he wants to be multiple and he wants to mix in zone do a lot of pattern matching zone mix fronts mix blitz but one of the things that I love about his 425 is as multiple as it is it's still simple enough and easy enough for his players to understand. Yep. And there's certain nuances that he does there. Um, for example, he, he likes to – the secondary, whenever he's calling defenses, the secondary is, is separated from assignments from the front six. Mm-hmm. And then he takes it a step further. So the secondary's assignments, while it is first separated from the front, then he splits those in half. Yep. And so essentially he's got it – gives, it gives the ability for his secondary to, to play man on one side and zone yep. on the other. Now you've talked about this before, how a lot of offenses will have man beaters on one side and zone on the other. Absolutely. Well, that can be a problem if he's got his man on your man and zone on your zone exactly. side. Exactly. So it, it's really advantageous there. Um, another thing that, that he likes to do here, which I think is really neat, is – so. The front six, the way he designs this, is designed to push everything outside of the safeties. Mm-hmm. So you've got your front six with their stunts and slants, and they're going to wreak havoc, and they want the safeties to clean everything up on the back end. Um, if you look at his alignment, if, if, you, if, you, watch, if you watch them and, and you look at those back safeties, he, he sets them up where they're just outside of the box. Yep. And that's you know that's a little different because mm-hmm. usually your safeties are they're safeties yeah. they're they're your 10, last exactly yep. they're they're your last line of defense before the end zone for those deep balls but when he aligns those just outside of the box that gives them a little bit more proximity to the line of scrimmage they can give more run support that's right. and he he teaches it as a, I think what I saw was is called inside and in front yes. And what that means is, and you correct me where I'm wrong here, but the safeties are taught that once a ball carrier declares their intention, they're not to allow them to cross their face. Exactly. Right, right. there, they don't cross that. So right. I, I think, and I, I'm assuming that some other coaches teach their safeties sure. the same thing that way. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, the way he does it, and that you talked about that splitting the field, even in the secondary kind of in half, really is – very innovative and and still is and so teaching those two things independently is really smart you know it it gets sort of a almost like a defensive soccer feel with how they they operate and they have like a sweeper and then they have the they have a move up safety and it's just very they get creative i've watched a lot of videos and he's got a lot of cool stuff going on and so I, i do love that I do love that. Yeah, and I think it's just it, it's it's neat the way they make it look, and it's it's very uh, the fact that it is so multiple, and the fact that he's very creative with those safeties. It's difficult on offenses, and it's difficult for a quarterback to read that and right. know where they need to go with it. It creates a lot of confusion, right. um, and quarterbacks don't have time to adjust to it, especially when you've got 
when you're running, he runs so many stunts and slants with his front four, and it just creates a lot of confusion, especially if you've got an offensive line that's doing a zone blocking scheme. It's just really going to fall apart for them. Well, and it's so interesting. This goes all the way back to season one, the very first episode I ever did with Jeff Barnes. Jeff Barnes talked about when he was talking to Travell Warden, who played offensive line in South Carolina, played in the NFL for a really long time. When you get to the NFL – as a lineman, you're not just looking at the defensive line and, and the linebackers. You're looking at the safety alignment because it's all about fit. So you can kind of figure out, well, if the safeties are here, they're not going to do this. Or if the safeties are you know, at pre-snap, obviously, that's just crazy how deep they get in the NFL. So like that can really throw you off with Patterson. And you know, one of the things that like Urban Meyer, with his power spread or his version of power spread, he had a very simple rule that he tried to follow. Two high safeties were running the ball. One high safety were throwing it. And, you know, with Patterson, with that split approach where they could be doing two different things, usually the safeties are married. If you got two high safeties, they're married to each other. And they, they have a very distinct role. And But in his rules, they can do all kinds of stuff. And, and it's very unique. It's very rover, monster back X uh, at the safety spot, which – takes a risk because you're right usually they're the safeties they're the last line of defense i can remember back in the old days of carolina football when they used to do um with charlie mack the gamecock football show they would talk about the defensive player of the year or excuse me defensive player of the game and you know unfortunately at that time <laughs> our leading tackler a lot was our safety and that's never a good sign i remember my dad saying when i was very little like well that's not good because I remember I said, Dad, that one guy gets all the tackles all the time. He's like, that's not good. He's our safety. We should not be doing that. And that's exactly right. You want your safety to have zero tackles because that means they hadn't got to them. So that's a, you know, a great approach. And, and you're right. Patterson's very creative there. So switching to the offensive scheme side, I love the air raid passing scheme. So we've talked a lot today about power spread and the marrying of power spread and what they do. Well, the air raid for years was the exact opposite of that. We're going five wide, and we're going to throw it 50, 60 times a game or more. It was a, you know, a simplification of a version of the West Coast offense coming out of BYU um, with Lavelle Edwards and later Norm Chow that Hal Mummy and Mike Leach put into place where they put the quarterback in shotgun for the simple reason. There's a lot of articles where they say this. It took – the defense longer to get to him. They weren't real confident in their offensive line to block, so if he's already back a little bit, that helps. Um, and also, they weren't running the ball real good, so they were like, why why do it? And they had all these smaller, shifty wide receivers, and they said, you know, let's use these these mesh routes where they're rubbing and, and all that. The biggest concept about the air raid that Mike Leach, who is at this point the only guy really probably running the true, true air raid in its purest form – they have about five or six plays, and they run them and run them and run them. And Mike Leach will flat out say, I don't care what the defense does. I don't care what they line up in. All that stuff we were just talking about with Gary Patterson and, and Brent Venables shifting, he don't care. He's going to call a play because in his mind, the way the system works, the quarterback is just looking for grass. He's looking for an open window, and by design, if there's a window, somebody should be standing there ready to catch the ball or breaking into it. So that's the air raid. The the knock on it for years was third and one, fourth and goal, third and goal. 
you're in the gun, you might have one back. Your offensive line has not really been asked to do a lot of power blocking or even zone blocking for that matter. Their basic run play was the draw. And the draw is designed to look like a pass. You invite the defensive line up field. You kick them all out. It looks like a splitting of uh, the parting of the seas. You quarterback's dropping back like he's going to throw. At last second, he sticks it in the running back's gut, and he goes up the middle. It's almost like a, a screen in a way. Sure. And so that was really the only run play. So bring in Lincoln Riley. Lincoln Riley, while he was at East Carolina, who South Carolina plays this year, working with um, – Ruff McDaniel, is that his last Ruffin name? Ruffin McNeil. Ruffin McNeil. Ruffin McDaniel. That's how <laughs> try. Um, last names aren't my thing. So he was running the spread. He was a Texas Tech GA. He learned under Mike Leach, and they were having success. The problem he found was the exact problem that a lot of people had with the air raid. Couldn't run the ball, and they needed to be able to run the ball at times. So he married the air raid simplification of passing with the power running or even a variable running. And now that he's at Oklahoma, he's in, included the, the QB run, the power QB run, and it is a thing of beauty. That simplify takes it all off the quarterback to throw the ball. You know, there's not as much reading. It's very simple. Graham Harold, who is another Texas Tech former quarterback, air raid guy in Southern Cal, I heard him talk uh, on the Fox pregame show this past season that he said, my, Coach Lee might get mad at me, but we at least read some at Southern Cal. <laughs> so, I mean, there was these air raid guys would get to the NFL, and they literally didn't know how to read a defense. They hadn't had to do it in four years, three years. So that simplification, I love. We've talked a lot about that today and in the past a lot of times. React, don't think. Was the problem. They couldn't get a run game going. They had issues with that. So they brought in the power game, brought it to Oklahoma, made it even more of a – Focal point. Same thing at North Carolina. You see that power running game with the air raid offense with Phil Longo. Longo, that's one of my favorite schemes right now. To, you know, take the simplification of the run – or sorry, the passing game and put it with that power running game, and it's really interesting. How, how do you uh, – from uh, specifically with Lincoln Riley, somebody who, who was from that – true pure air raid philosophy when he said, okay, I need to work in more of a power run game. How do you do that? Do, do you draw from, from a, another traditional run offense and just see what concepts mesh? How do you make that work? I think he that's exactly what he did. He looked at other offenses he had been around, seen. You know, quarterbacks – or excuse me, coaches are always – when you see you play somebody else and you see them do something, you go, man, we should just – Put that in our offense, which can become dangerous because then your offensive playbook is an encyclopedia and it's too big. You can't run everything and you're not great at anything. But I believe from my understanding, he looked at offenses they played and also at different playbooks, went to coaches clinics, went and talked to other coaches. What's crazy is in the offseason, as hard as these coaches work to keep everything secret in the offseason, a lot of times they talk to each other mm-hmm. and they go see each other and they talk about what they're doing. And so that's just how it gets shared. So I think that was really the birth of that. So we're going to wrap it up here. And, of course, we have to talk about a little South Carolina football. We have a very interesting situation with – we've mentioned Brandon – sorry, Luke Doney is hurt. And, you know, he had Jason Brown, who looks like he was going to be the, the starter in his place. And I'll be honest, unbeknownst to me, we had a GA on – our coaching staff, Zeb Nolan, who had played at Iowa State, who had played at North Dakota State, 
that still had a year of eligibility because of COVID-19. And they put him in a jersey and had him run practice, and now he's moved up to be potentially QB1 for the first game. And, and you know, I, I think a lot of people, when, when, when this happened, when, when Doty got hurt and then they basically brought Zeb out of retirement here, um, a, a lot of people from the outside looking in saw this as, as panic. Well, oh, this is not good. This is great. They're going to be – they're pulling a, a GA out of here who hasn't gone through spring, hasn't done this. But it, it's a little bit different here because this was – I think – Notwithstanding the fact that he could be the starter week one, I think this was more of a, hey, we need some more depth in this room. We need some more quarterbacks in practice, guys that know things. But what people fail to realize is because of the fact that he was at North Dakota State most recently backing up Trey Lance, um, he was playing in the spring of 2021. You know, they, they, they ran that season because of COVID when everything got screwed up. He was playing through as a backup, but still got significant touches. He was playing through April of this year, so it's not like he's he's you know coming out of retirement and is and is out of shape and all this. I mean, he was playing college football earlier this year. And add that to the fact, to my understanding, as they were putting together the South Carolina core, uh, offensive playbook, he was entering in the plays. He wasn't designing them per se. But he was literally putting it into the system, designing the formations, tagging things, doing all of that. So, I mean, wow, he knows the offense pretty doggone well. So, I mean, that's going to be interesting to see. At this point, going into it, and no disrespect to Eastern Illinois, there's no reason for Luke Jody to play. If he's not 110%, let's not get, take the chance. His Completely foot's agree. been issued. Um, you know, it's been sprained. That can linger. Let's not wait. Let's not have that happen. So let's just go ahead and let him sit out and let him recover. And quite honestly, if you can take care of East Carolina, you know, get him some work. But also, let's say Zeb goes out there and plays a great game or Jason Brown gets his chance and he goes out there and plays a great game. Let's work it in. You know, Coach Beamer joked about in that first scrimmage when Doty was hurt that yeah, I don't think he was joking, actually. He was just pointing out that the carry on joiner got snaps at, at, at quarterback. That's that scrimmage and he said y'all go ahead and take some time working on that in practice so i mean that does make it harder on the defense they got to think about all these different guys who could be playing behind center you can't prepare for one guy because you could be at this point potentially three guys four guys and so that gives you a little bit of a tactical advantage yeah and i think at this point we'll take all the advantages we can get absolutely all right well that has brought us to the end of today's episode We will be back next week, and we will be doing what we'll be doing for the next several weeks, which is breaking down the South Carolina game, breaking down the Clemson game, and breaking down a game of the week. Thomas, as always, it was awesome, man. Had a great time. Looking forward to a good season.